This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Equity Minds! I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is you can Welcome to another episode of Equity Mates, It's a podcast that follows our journey of investing. We break down the world of investing from beginning to dividends so that you can hopefully make some returns. My name's Bryce, and as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Ren. How's it going, bro? I'm very good, Bryce. Very excited for this episode. We have a returning superstar. The Hearts and Mind episode with Rory Lucas was so good that we've brought him back. Yes, it was a great 300th episode with Rory about the Hearts and Minds initiative, which is just a phenomenal investment vehicle for our audience, which we've had great feedback. So, Rory, good to have you back. Great to be back. And we welcome another superstar um, to the show. As we said, we're going to be having some previous conference people from Sohn come on the show. And we are delighted to welcome Nick Griffin from Munro. How are you going, Nick? Yeah, good, guys. Thanks for having me. Nick is founding partner and the chief investment officer at Munro Partners and is responsible for the investment management of Munro's key investment funds and the formulation and implementation of their investment processes. He's been managing global long and short equities for over 12 years and at the last conference pitched the Trade Desk stock, which the ticker is TTD. So go and check that out at the 2019 Sone Hearts and Minds conference, which is up 150% since uh, it's pitched on 22nd yeah, of November. Not so a bad pretty pitch. impressive. <laughs> well done, Nick. <laughs> Thank you, Nick. <laughs> yeah, it worked out okay, that one. Yeah, <laughs> the plan for this episode is just to unpack, you know, what Nick is doing over at Munro, and then we'll also touch on some of the hearts and minds stuff as well. So before we do, Ren's got a bit of a game. Yeah, Nick, we do always like to start with a bit of a game, throw out a few indexes and themes that we may not otherwise get to speak about in the episode and get your thoughts on whether they're overrated or underrated. So we'll start close to home with the ASX 200 index. Overrated or underrated? Um, I'm afraid I'm going to say overrated to that one. Any particular reason? I just, you know, we run a global equity mandate, a global growth mandate. Your goal in equities, put simply, is to find the very few exceptional companies and to avoid the thousands of average ones. That's how equity markets work. And the reality is, is if, if your goal is to find those few exceptional companies, the, the vast majority of them are probably going to be outside Australia. I'm not saying there's not good companies in Australia. There's some great companies in Australia. There's some great things to invest in Australia. But 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 it's I think it's on the balance of probabilities, the vast majority of the best ideas are probably going to be outside Australia. 
So then overrated or underrated, the NASDAQ 100? I'd still say it's underrated, to be honest, but I recognise it's it's more recognised today than it has been at any time in the, in the past. Coming back to Australia, an asset class that is on a lot of people's minds all the time is property. So overrated or underrated Australian residential property? Never ask a fund manager about property. We've got no idea. <laughs> <laughs> we, we buy houses at the top and we sell them at the bottom. Better off asking a trader. So I'm, I'm, I'm not even going to comment. To close it out, uh, overrated or underrated gold? Overrated massively. And look, I know I'm disappointing a lot of people here. I started my career as a gold analyst. You fly around planes in Western Australia and look at holes in the ground. And yeah, you, you, you meet a lot of really crazy people who think this is a currency and think it's going to be, you know, it's a store of value. And, and, I, and I completely see that argument, but I just don't see anyone actually using it as that. I just see a lot of people who think it's that. And I just, I'm just not sure. In the long run, I do think there will be other stores of value that come along. And so, so I do think it is slightly overrated. Yeah. Fair enough. So, Nick, we love to start these interviews with learning about someone's background. And we love to hear about people's first investment. We generally find there's a good story or a few good lessons that come out of that. So to kick us off today, can you tell us the story of your first investment? Yeah, so I'm very lucky. As um, So I'm sort of in my late 40s and I grew up at a time in Australia where lots of businesses were privatizing. So things like Commonwealth Bank or things like um, Telstra privatized. And so the government effectively handed out these gifts of businesses that were run by bureaucracies that were privatizing and they offered them to all taxpayers. So anyone who filled in the form got stock. And the stock, you generally were getting a gift and and they and a lot of them did really well. At least initially, Telstra did well and Commonwealth Bank did amazingly and things like Qantas and others came along at the same time. And so they were sort of, they weren't free money, but they were they were really good opportunities and, and they priced them very well to keep investors happy. And, and those were my first experience investing. And so I had a good experience, which ultimately led me into the industry. So then from that to where you are now at um, Munro Partners, have you developed an investing philosophy? Yeah, so I'd come back to what I said at the start. And so equities are very different to every other asset class you'll look at. So if you invest in a bond, for instance, you're investing in a fixed interest security that's run by the government. You know, there's sort of these faceless people that look after the deficit in Australia. And that's what your bond does. When you're investing in an equity, you're generally investing in someone's vision, someone's idea that could be truly great or, or it could fail spectacularly. And the, the key thing to remember is the vast majority fail spectacularly. You know, so you know, we could show you some analysis and it'd be the same in Australia or anywhere else in the world. But if you looked at the US market over the last 90 years, there's actually been 25,500 companies listed and more than 14,000 of them have gone to zero. Wow. So 60% of all companies go to zero. The next 8,000 only make an off to offset what the other 14,000 lose. And so you end up with just 1,000 companies. So less than 4% of every company that listed creates the entire value of the US stock market. And out of those 1,000 companies, if you take the top 50 of those 1,000 companies, they make up nearly 50% of that value. So 50 companies out of 25,000 when you started make up nearly 50% of the value. And so we know who those companies are now. You're like, we know who they are. They're Microsoft, they're Amazon, they're Google, they're Apple, they're you know, Home Depot, they're Walmart. But what's interesting about them is there's usually a couple of strong individuals behind it, and there's usually a structural disruption or a structural change that they're looking to exploit. And obviously, everyone's now focused on tech, and I'm sure we'll end up talking about it. But if you go back over time, it was always something that was happening, whether it was big box retailing creates Walmart and Home Depot, or quick service restaurants creates McDonald's, or entertainment creates Disney or air travel creates Boeing. But what's interesting about it is there's always only a few winners, right? So, you know, thousands of companies tried to build a plane 
but there's only two companies that can build a plane that you and I will knowingly get on, being Airbus and Boeing. And so, so once you understand that, as your philosophy, you realize that equity investing is actually about just going out and trying to find these exceptional companies. You know there's only going to be a few of them. You're probably going to make a bunch of mistakes along the way, but you want to find these exceptional companies and everything else being you know, over or underweight sectors or where interest rates are going or where the economy is going is actually not that material. It definitely affects the short term, but over the long term, it doesn't really affect anything. I love that. That explanation just gets me so excited about investing and trying to find those good companies. Now, I want to get into your work at Munro Partners and hear about how you find those good companies. But before we do, we're just going to take a quick pause to hear from our sponsors. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. So, Nick, you mentioned there your investing philosophy is all about finding those great companies, those select few that drive the returns for the overall market and for the overall indexes. And Munro Partners is growth-focused investing house. So, you must be loving life at the moment with <laughs> some of the movement in some of these growth stocks. Well, we interviewed a value investor yesterday and it was, <laughs> it was grim. <laughs> he was not having fun. <laughs> Yeah, so look, it's a good time for what we do. We agree, you know, and I'm sure the value investor talked about interest rates being low and the economic cycle not really being here. And 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 I would agree they are tailwinds for growth investing. But we'd also argue that um, you know, this concept of disruption is actually accelerating, and there's a lot of reasons for that. And the disruption's accelerating, and people are coming more to this viewpoint that you know there there are fewer and fewer winners and more and more losers because, and that's really around digitalization. And so that's what's driving the category. But it, yeah, it's been a, it's been a good time to be a growth investing. It's an exciting time to, to look at new businesses, that's for sure. We'd love to unpack your process a little bit on how you actually find those select few businesses because, as you explained, there's a lot of businesses out there that wouldn't pass your tests and wouldn't fit that description. So if we start at the beginning, how does your research process start? How do you go about actually starting to figure out which businesses are even in the universe of ones that you want to research more and invest in? Yeah, so I'd encourage your listeners to just think about you know, keeping your eyes, it's amazing how many equity participants just constantly look at charts or look at, you know, what certain stocks are doing in a certain index and stop looking at what's actually happening around them. And so the first thing to do is to, what we do is try to identify areas of structural change. So I'll use a historical sample to begin with, which would be like smartphone penetration, right? So every person on this call can probably remember the dinner party or the, the time they, they saw someone with their first iPhone and they went, geez, that's pretty cool. I'd, I'd like to get myself one of those. And we'd all been walking around with our Nokias or my Ericsson's for a while and, <laughs> and the iPhone came along. 
And so you knew this was going to be a big shift. You just didn't know who was going to win. And so the first thing do I do is identify areas of structural change. So smartphone penetration, e-commerce, cloud computing, innovative healthcare, decarbonization of the planet. These are the areas where the big structural changes will occur. And so they're good places to look for those next big winners, because what we're trying to do is not work out who the big winners were as a growth investor. We're trying to work out who the next bunch will be. So is it, you know, is it Netflix? Is it Salesforce? Is it Atlassian? Is it those sorts of things? And so you've got to start looking in the right place to begin with. And so what we do is identify these areas of interest or these themes that we want to focus on. So then once you, I guess, find your stock and identify that area and, and you're pretty confident on what that next company is, you know, something that we get asked throughout our community a lot is, particularly with these growth companies, is how do you know when to enter into one of these positions? And then particularly, how do you know when is the right time to exit when looking at it through a growth framework? The key actually is once you find the area, you, you probably won't find the stock straight away. So again, you might find the area and, and what we would do is then work out who the participants are. And so let's go back to smartphones. It's, you know, Apple, it's Motorola, it's Ericsson, it's Nokia. It's HTC, it's Samsung. So that was they were the ones in the area back then in 2007. And then you had to work down and find who were going to be the few winners. And so that's where we do qualitative tests. And so what we would look at really closely, or obviously we'd build models on the companies and work out where we thought their earnings were going to go, but we'd really look at who the alignment of the management in the group. Because remember, it's all going to be about the individuals that drive the process. So when you look at these great growth companies, they've generally got, you know, a a dominant founding shareholder. In Apple's case, it's Steve Jobs or was Steve Jobs or, or Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk. Uh, and you'll find that even down into the small companies like in Australia. So CSL has been run by the same guy in Australia now for over 20 years. You'll find that stability and management and that beautiful alignment that they have with the outcome for the shareholders. And so that's a key indicator. And the last thing that you should really focus is on what the customers think of their product. And so generally, you know, the customers will love it. And if you, if you go all the way back to the Apple scenario, people thought it was a niche product because it was so expensive, but customers have always loved the Apple products and that's why Apple's proved to be successful versus the peers. So those are some of the key qualitative characteristics we'd look for. In terms of your last question as to when to buy it and when to sell it. So arguably, if you think about this on a very long-term time horizon, the buying it question, provided you find the right company, the value you pay for it, in very, very long run is irrelevant. In the medium run, it's very relevant. And in the short term, it's incredibly relevant. And so from that point of view, find the right company first, and then we would build an earnings model, find the valuation where we felt the risk reward would be right to buy it, and then we'd buy it. And then in terms of selling it, if, it, if they're still executing along the time frame that you think, and across the entire total addressable market that you think is achievable, we'd argue in most cases it pays just to run it to continue to run it until the day they stop executing. And once they, once you've decided the facts have changed, then you change your view. Um, and those are, those are the way that we think about it. The last thing I'd just say here is you are going to make like a lot of mistakes when you do this. It's inevitable. If it's a game of few winners and lots of losers, you're going to make mistakes. So the other thing that we spend a lot of time on is having a stop-loss process. So having a process where how do we realize we've made a mistake? How do we realize that BlackBerry is not going to be the big smartphone winner? And that comes around a stop-loss framework. And so those are the two, two things together that help you buy it and run it, but also cut it. Following up on that, that idea of a stop-loss, how do you balance between a company where your thesis is wrong, i.e. BlackBerry, and you know they're, they're not going to keep growing, or like a short-term price disruption that might trigger a stop-loss, 
but your thesis is actually right and over the long term they will continue growing at good rates of return? Yeah, so it's a great question. And so the stop loss, we'd argue you do not follow religiously. It's more a reaction function. So we would use the stop loss to make us review the investment case. So for instance, over COVID, we own Amazon. Amazon triggered through the COVID crisis. It fell on our trigger levels. But we came, we reviewed the investment case, decided Amazon was better off and, 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 and kept it. We didn't sell it. But at the same time, Airbus triggered or Uber triggered. And in both those cases, when we reviewed the investment case, we decided things had changed and that we'd just stepped to the sidelines for a while. doesn't mean we won't come back. It just means for now, we're going to step to the sidelines. And that's, 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 it's to not use it as a religious, like you have to sell, to use it as a reaction function. Because the problem you'll end up with, and everybody on the podcast, I hope, is going to start nodding their heads. But they're going to, you end up with, if you don't have a formalized stop loss arrangement, then you end up buying a stock, which seemed like a good idea at the time. It doesn't work out. You ignore the fact it doesn't work out. And in the end, it ends up in your bottom drawer of your desk. And you've, lost, and, you, and you've lost more than 90% of your money on the stock. As someone who's lost 99% of their money on a stock, I can, I can attest that that happens. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and so that has a twofold effect. On the one hand, you've lost 99% on the value of the stock, which there is nothing embarrassing about that happening because the vast majority of stocks do go to zero. But the other problem that happens is it then stops you from going back to your thesis and actually finding the winner. So, you know, if you, you could have stopped, your BlackBerry investment would have stopped out in 2011 and you could have easily moved away from BlackBerry and decided that Apple was the winner and you still would have made seven times your money since then. So, so it not only does it do, it, it stops you from them finding the winner as well. And so that's why it's quite a useful process. So Nick, you touched on value there and I'm interested to unpack that a little because with growth, you know, what do you say to the people who look at the PEs of Amazon and Afterpay and even years ago when they were still trading at very high PEs and, and sort of say, oh, you know, you know, even though they've got good growth potential, they're far too overvalued. I'm, I'm not going to pay for that. And yet they've continued to trade on such high multiples for a very long period of time. And still, I guess the, the growth horizon is, is still, I guess, impressive. H- how should we be thinking that about that as sort of beginner investors and, and going through our journey? Yeah, so it's important to remember that the PE multiple for a company is basically a shortcut to valuing the company. You're not actually valuing the company. The value of the company is its discounted cash flows over a long period of time. And so people use PEs to say a company is expensive, but actually what they're doing is just being a bit lazy yeah. and not actually doing the work. So what we would argue is, is you know, people should do the work and work out what's possible. And so, you know, Afterpay is a great example of Australia. You know, if they succeeded in Australia and succeeded in the UK and succeeded in the US, you know, and you put a probability on that, what would that actually be worth? And then put a probability on them not succeeding and a probability on somewhere in between. And then you'll, you'll get a much more realistic value of what the company could actually be worth. But you've got to take a longer term view. You've got to look more like five to 10 years out. The other thing I'd say, if you think about just a company like Netflix, for instance, you don't actually want them to be making any money because you know that over the top's going to win. You know that you're probably going to be subscribed to at best five video. I mean, I, I, how many how many video subscriptions do you have at home today currently? Too, too many. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> at, at least four that I can think of right now. <laughs> yeah. So I've got I've got three right, and I think most people are going to be between three and ten right. But the reality is, is there's five to six commercial television stations in 195 countries around the world, right? So in linear TV, there's 200 options. 
in over the top, there's five to 10 that are realistic. So you know that this is about to go from a game of 200 to a game of five to 10, and you want to be in those five to 10. And so the problem for Netflix is you know that you want them to be one of those winners. So you want them to spend as much money as they can on content and attracting as many customers as possible so that that network effect will work for them. The last thing you want them to do is to pay a dividend or to be cash flow positive because that means they're a chance of losing, which means they're worth nothing. And so, and in many scenarios we look at around the world, whether it's software or music streaming, or even in renewable energy or electric cars, you, you got to spend money to win. And so if you're looking at the PE multiple, you're potentially missing the bigger picture. So unfortunately, you just got to do the work. So Nick, I think you're the first investor on the show in 300 episodes who said they're looking for a company that isn't cash flow positive. Yeah. <laughs> that's, a, that's a new one, but... It makes sense. And I like it. The description you just gave of Netflix is a new way of thinking about it for me. I've always thought this fragmenting is going to be a bad thing for Netflix, but it's an interesting thesis. Just point out, no, so the point is, obviously, we prefer to find companies that are cash flow positive, and we prefer to find them at really low PE multiples. That would be great. I just don't think it's realistic if you look into the future that you're going to find these great winners sitting at PEs of 15 times and cash flow positive. Mm. Yeah, the va- the value guys will do that. They go from the bottom to the top, and and that's what they do, and that's makes perfect sense for them. It's just not what we do. You're asking us to find who's the big software winner in the future, and you're not going to be a big software winner in the future if you don't spend money on your product. So you got to think of it differently. You got to take a longer term view. And you've got to be prepared to accept a bit of cash flow negativity for a while or loss making. Rory's been sitting here waiting patiently. So we're going to get to him and to hearts and mind in a second. I do have one more question before we do, though. You mentioned how valuation isn't about PE. It's about the discounted value of future cash flows. And I'm interested to get your thoughts on what risk-free rate you use. You don't have to tell us the exact number <laughs> if that's you know part of your investing secrets. But with interest rates so low and potentially getting even lower. How do you think about the risk-free rate and what do you sort of use to benchmark that? Look, at the moment, we're still using most cases around 8%. In some cases, like for some of these climate names, we might use lower because they have a lower cost of capital because of green bonds, et cetera, but mainly around 8%. No, no, the key is just to look a bit further into the future and as to what the cash flows could be. And so, yeah, the good example I always use is like Google listed in 2005, I think, at 80 times earnings and a $50 share price and cash flow negative. And today Google's a $1,400 stock. It's on 30 times earnings and hugely cash generative. And so when was Google cheaper? In 2005 or 2020? And the answer was it was actually cheaper in 2005. You just had to do the work. Yeah. Uh, you, just had to work you just had to work out that network effects would kick in and that ultimately would be only be one search engine and work your way through that. And you learned a lot over that time frame about what could happen in the future. Yeah, well, we're speaking a day after Microsoft reported their quarterly earnings and the operating leverage that they are showing is just unbelievable. The amount of revenue that's flowing to that bottom line is pretty crazy at the moment. So Equity Mates, we'll take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. So Nick and Rory, it's, uh, I guess, a good time now to head to the Hearts and Minds conference, which Nick, you are going to be involved in with this year as a conference fund manager. And uh, we're very much looking forward to, to seeing the pitch. We will be yes. there, so so no pressure. I guess let's start at the beginning. And uh, I know, Rory, you have a few words to say here as well. But why is it important to you, Nick, for you to actually be involved in, in something like this? 
from our point of view, I mean, obviously, we, we desperately want people to invest. So GDP is made up of consumption plus investment plus government spending. And so you want people to learn how to invest. Investment is a very important part of the economy. The more people who learn and understand how to do it, the better job growth will be and the better our quality of life will be for everybody. And then what Hearts and Minds brings to that equation is not only promoting people to invest, but but also promotes redistribution. So to, to great causes along the way, which is, you know, the capitalist system inevitably creates inequalities. And, and this is your chance to, 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 to help with redistribution as well. And and I think the guys do a great job with that. So they're the, they're the two main reasons why we like like it. Rory, Nick pitched last year, and we'll get into what he pitched, but why did you extend the invitation back to him again? Um, <laughs> and I guess more, more generally, um, I imagine it's a difficult process to actually determine who gets to pitch. There's so many good investors in Australia. So how do you navigate that? Yeah, well, we got we got Nick back because Munro are a fantastic investor, as you can see. Nick is clearly very intelligent as we've just been all been listening to for the last half an hour he's a fantastic presenter as well if you're going to have a conference you have to be able to present well there can be the really smart people who are introverted and don't speak well in public nick's not one of those nick speaks fantastically in front of a thousand people and he's clearly very intelligent in terms of hearts and minds one of the important things is that you stand up and you pitch the stock but because we invest in it for the next 12 months you're in it for the next 12 months. So you need to remain engaged with management. And Nick has been fantastic with that. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. So for us, it's a privilege to have someone like Nick in our suite of conference presenters. And the other thing that I just wanted to say was that fundamentally, Hearts and Minds doesn't exist without our fund managers. We've got our core managers and we've got our conference managers. These guys are the guys that recommend the stocks for our portfolio so that we can invest in them. Without stock recommendations, we've got nothing. And therefore, shareholders don't have the returns that they've achieved in the last couple of years. And the beneficiaries haven't got the donations that they've received. So I just wanted to make sure, Nick, you and all of our other managers understand how much we appreciate your contribution to Hearts and Minds. Yeah, it's an unreal thing that you're doing, Nick, and that the other managers are all doing. Rory, you mentioned there it's not just stock pitch and then all the managers go their separate way and you don't talk for another 12 months. It's a ongoing process of engagement throughout the year. And it would be interesting to hear you tell us a little bit about that because you're right, like the company's constantly evolving and changing and things are constantly happening. So what is that process like and how hands-on are the managers and how hands-on are you throughout the year? Well, like I said, it's it's the fund managers that recommend the stocks. We have an investment committee, which I report to, who and I recommend which stocks get pitched. Generally, all of them will be put in the portfolio unless that we can't execute them because they're on an exchange which doesn't exist. That isn't. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> the re- that was what I was going to pitch, a yeah. fake stock on a, an exchange that didn't exist. <laughs> or that it's not liquid enough yeah, for the size yeah, yeah. of the positions yeah. that, that we need to deploy our capital with. As Nick said, a lot of stocks can and do go wrong. And we have the highest conviction ideas from a fantastic set of managers, but, but sometimes they can go wrong. And so, as I said, it requires the engagement for the 12 months. Fortunately, since Hearts and Minds began as a listed investment company, most stocks have performed well. So it's more been about when do we take profits? And like you guys were asking, mm-hmm. Nick, how do you exit a stock? So that's where I come in in interactions with Nick and all of the other managers because I've got one of their stocks in our portfolio to manage, but they've got their 30 to 50 stocks in at least one of their portfolios and Nick manages multiple portfolios. Mm-hmm. So he may not have seen a trade desk move as quickly as I might have seen it because he's looking at a whole lot of other things. And so I'll be in touch with Nick 
you know, if something has happened in the stock or if he has any concerns with any upcoming events like quarterly reporting seasons. Mm. So, Nick, you're coming off a stock pitch that's up 150% off the back of last year's um, (laughs) conference, and you've just heard that Rory generally accepts all stocks into the portfolio. Are you feeling (laughs) confident about your pitch for 2020? Yeah, I think we are this year. (laughs) To be fair, I mean, the trade desk desk was a good idea, but was one of those ones where the P multiple was very high. So we had to really get over the valuation and just believe in the much longer term. And that ultimately meant when you're looking at a 12-month horizon, that means it can you know, it can go wrong. You know, they'd only need to miss one quarter for for the stock to go down, but the long-term thesis would be fine. This year's got a just as good a long-term thesis, but it's cheaper. So it's a little bit more undiscovered. And so there's a little bit more um, downside protection there than there was, say, on the trade desk. So we were talking about this with Rory when we had him on and the mindset that you need to take into this, given that you're pitching a stock for 12 months, and also that we're about to head into a US election, we've got a potential vaccine announcement, maybe yeah, within the next 12 trade months, war. potential <laughs> trade war. so much going on. Are you expecting or do you factor in any of these potential catalyst events when you, when you pitch for this next 12 months? Probably not those ones, but we have looked at things like capital markets days and stuff that we expect the company to 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 announce. Yeah, right. Some some new stuff along the way, but those ones, no. You know, those are the stuff. You know, if we if you're worried about that stuff, you you, you would never actually pitch the stocks we're pitching. You you got to pitch them on their own merits, and and hope that it plays out. And the only bad bit is it doesn't play out within 12 months. Well, sometimes it doesn't. So I'll give you an example. I pitched Amazon the first year. And Amazon, we've held for seven years. It's the biggest position in the fund. It's probably been my all-time best stock. You know, we've made well over 10 times our money on it. The year that Rory held it was the worst year it performed in the 10 years. <laughs> <I know. laughs> and, and, I, and I think it made about 18% for him or something. And, and so that was a little Jeez. bit frustrating. Uh, but, um, Still geez, a pretty but, good know, return yeah, as far as I'm concerned. I'll take 18% every time. <laughs> yeah, but it's, it's, it's put on like 60 the year after that and then another 50 yeah, this yeah, year. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah, that, that was a little frustrating. So I went for the safe option thinking this will make them a good 30, 40%. And, and it happened to put, <laughs> it was the year that Jeff Bezos got divorced and all these other things oh, happened. Yeah. And it's just like, oh, yeah. really? <laughs> uh, so so that, that's the nuance, really the 12 months. The rest of it, no, we don't look at that closely. We've mentioned the stock a couple of times, the trade desk. It trades on the NASDAQ under the ticker TTD. It would be great if we could firstly get you to describe the stock and then we might get into your thesis for the stock. But yeah, to start with, for people who've never heard of this company before, can you tell us what it is and what they do? Yeah, so, so put simply, it's, it's, a, it's a demand side platform for programmatic advertising. So, so put simply, if you know those ads that follow you around the internet? <laughs> yes. Uh, that are really irritating? Follow your podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, follow your podcasts, exactly. That's them. And so... It's a, it's a previously fairly unloved industry, but as you would know, you know, you're doing a podcast right now and you'd be selling the ads for this podcast into an exchange and depending on which country they're listening to it, you would get different ads. And that's what the Trade Desk helps facilitate. It's a platform that allows people to buy ad inventory all over the world. And ultimately, it's a way of amalgamating the non-walled gardens. So you've got Facebook and Google or what we would call the walled gardens. I, you have to deal with Facebook if you want to advertise on Facebook. And everyone else is in the rest of the non-world garden. And Trade Desk just does a really good job of amalgamating all that inventory for advertisers to use. 
I imagine that there's quite a number of companies that are playing in this space. You mentioned right at the start, part of your process is identifying the the area of growth and then thinking about what companies are going to be the number one or two in that area. What is it about Trade Desk that makes it sit in that that top one or two? Yeah, so the clever thing they did is Jeff Green, the guy who runs it, he'd already sold a couple of ad tech businesses prior to setting up the Trade Desk. He just made it a, a buyer, a platform. It works more like a Bloomberg screen rather than a return on investment product. So most of the products in the market are like, you pay us this and it goes into a black box and we'll get you that. He just provided, it's actually just a piece of software that allows people to pick the inventory they want to manage their ROIs. And so if you go to an advertising agency, you know, there's a trading desk now, hence the name, the trade desk. And so you should think of it a bit like a Bloomberg terminal to how you access the advertising markets around the world. That was their clever nuance. And the reason why we pitched it last year and the reason why it's worked so well is because all this new inventory came to market. And so we just talked about inventory in podcasts, but the big inventory that came to market was all the direct TV. So digital TV took off, Disney Plus launched, Peacock launched, Stan, all these other Netflix competitors came along and a vast majority of them are ad supported, you know, and every sport in the world started doing their own streaming platform that are ad supported. And so instead of just being banner ads on the internet, it suddenly became audio ads and TV ads. And so they basically got to work their way into the largest pool of advertising inventory in the world, which is television inventory. And the trade desk became the vehicle for people to do that. And so that's why we pitched it last year because we knew that change was coming and that's what happened, which is good. I actually watched uh, your pitch. We, we should give a, a plug if people want to see it. On the Munro Partners website, you guys have posted it there so people can watch the full Hearts and Minds 2019 pitch there. You had this great chart that had the rise of digital advertising and the rise of Facebook and Google and then this programmatic section. Then you basically showed how all the offline advertising was going to become digital and a lot of it was going to become programmatic. It was a good chart that really made that thesis very clear and it seems that it's playing out. Yeah, yeah. So what we said, it was the next big winner in digital advertising. So the same thesis that got us into Google was the same thesis that got us into Facebook. And then the last thesis is how does everyone else go digital? Well, they need they need an amalgamator and that amalgamator we think will be the trade desk. And the market so far agrees. Doesn't mean it's going to play out that way, but that's what we think. We mentioned that the stock's up 150% since you pitched it. Unfortunately though, it's EBITDA was down about a quarter. (laughs) I imagine that was a bit COVID related. It's also trading at a a very high PE. I just looked at it before. I think it's 249 price to earnings ratio at the moment. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. So I guess uh, (laughs) now in, uh, where are we? Uh, October 2020, does your thesis still hold? Are there any caveats or updates to the thesis or how are you thinking about the stock now? Look, I think when we pitched it, it had a market cap of around $8 billion, and now it's sort of in the mid-20s. Ultimately, you know, this could be a $50 to $100 billion business at some point in the future. But we'd argue it probably has got a little bit ahead of itself here. You know, we have advised Rory to bank the position before the result next week, just because it's only three weeks to go and he has to bank them all anyway. So it's probably a bit of ahead of itself, but but ultimately it's it's executing along its trajectory that I talked about earlier. And so if you did hold it, there's no reason to sell it today, apart from, you know, short-term volatility. It has a, it is continuing to execute along the trajectory we think might be a bit of ahead of itself at the moment, but ultimately there is a destination that suggests it could be bigger in the future. Five or 10 times bigger, Rory. It must hurt to have to get rid of it. 
<laughs> like I said, we were happy with 18% return from Amazon last year to get 150% return. <laughs> true, true. We're happy with that for a 12-month return. I know, phenomenal. Uh, but yes, it, it did sound a little bit like DocuSign. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Jeez, you guys are going to be spewing if they come out with a good earnings result next week. Yeah. I think the result will be fine. I think the result will be fine. But I mean, look, it is... It is you know, when we set a price target for this, the five-year price target was $600, and it's got there in one year. Now, admittedly, and their business, as you point out, has actually got worse this year because of COVID, but but the digital TV thing's definitely happening. The election's happening. They are executing, but I would argue, I, I agree the valuation's a little ahead of itself, but, but there is no reason to step off it in the if you, if you take a three- to five-year view. So, Equity Mates, if hearing about a stock that's gone up 150% and hearing from Nick hasn't excited you enough, uh, the good news is that we have another 25 tickets available for the Equity Mates community to attend the Sown Hearts and Minds conference. And the better news is that that is at a 20% discount. So, for 400 bucks, you can join the already 25 plus Ren and I, so 27, whatever it may be, <laughs> Equity Mates who are, who are going. And uh, you too can be hearing from Nick and the other fabulous fund managers who will be speaking on the day. Don't forget, Bill Ackman will be talking. Yep. So it's a pretty phenomenal opportunity. To do so, head to Sown and Minds website. We'll include that in the notes. Sown Hearts and Minds. Sorry, Sown Hearts and Minds <laughs> website. <laughs> we'll you will not that. be pitching. I'm not going to worry about spelling it out. We'll just make sure we include it in the show notes and use the code HM1MATES to receive your 20% off. It's an awesome opportunity. So Yeah, we should, we should clarify that we've got 25 tickets 20% off. There are still other tickets that aren't discounted. So yes, yes. even if you can't get the discount, it's still worth going. Absolutely. Um, so make sure you jump on and get your tickets now. The conference is the 13th of November. So make sure you get your tickets before then. The good news as well is that the content will remain available 48 hours after it all actually occurs. So if you can't make it on the Friday and take the day off, although we recommend that Just you Just take do, the day off. Yeah. <laughs> you have the weekend to watch it. Before we jump to final three for Nick, are there any other big guests that might be coming, Rory? Yeah, there is one. We've announced our second keynote speaker. Just this week, his name's Scott Galloway, okay. Professor Scott Galloway. Okay, he teaches at the I'll get this right, the New York University Stern School of Business. Oh, great! Um, and as I said, he's a professor of marketing, and so we've heard a lot about digital marketing and advertising today. So it'll be fascinating to hear an academic perspective on um, marketing and a whole lot more, especially straight after the presidential election is yes. hopefully <laughs> decided. Unlikely. Yeah, true. So you've got two Americans speaking the week after the election. That's yeah. going to be interesting. All the information is in our show notes. Please do join us and everyone else at the conference. It's going to be awesome. So, Ren, final three for, for Nick. Yeah, so Nick, we do always like to end these interviews with a final three questions. Before we do, if people want to follow you online or read more of your work or anything like that, is there any particular website or any social media channel they should follow you on? Yeah, so thank you. So the Munro Partners website is full of lots of information in terms of those videos that you, you talked about. And so we encourage people. We're very we're reasonably transparent about our ideas. We can't guarantee they're all going to work, but we're definitely transparent <laughs> about the fact that um, that we will tell you about them. And then we have a YouTube channel also. And lastly, you know, good opportunity to say we are quoting the product on the Australian Stock Exchange next week. So the fund is available on the ASX as of the 2nd of November. And so it'll be quoted under the code M-A-E-T. So if you want to invest in the fund, you can you can just buy it on the exchange and let us do all the work for you. 
Jeez, that's uh, great timing for us to be having this conversation. <laughs> yeah. excited, excited to see how it goes. Yeah, um, thank you. So we'll get into these final three questions. And the first one we always like to ask is, do you have any books that you consider must read? Yes, yeah, so I saw that question in the preview. And, and the sad news is I don't read a lot of investment books. We try to define our own style. I do read industry books like The Second Machine Age or, or, or things around automation and robotics. And I strongly encourage people to read those from the experts, but, but I don't read many investment books. The other thing that are really important to read and lots of people don't do this, but you should just read the conference call transcripts. I mean, we're so lucky that, you know, Sasha Nadella, the Microsoft results just came out. You can read it. He, he'll give you 40 minutes of his time. Anyone can get the transcript. Just read it. He'll tell you what's going to happen. And they've got the biggest CapEx budget in the world. And so if they tell you what's going to happen, you pretty much know where the money's going to go. And if you know where the money's going to go, you can work out where to invest. And so that's what we do spend a lot of time reading. That's such a good call. Bryce and I often talk about how we can bring those conference calls and the transcripts and the audio when it's recorded more public because they are just such a good resource and really underutilized. But anyway, that's a that's a conversation for another day. <laughs> <laughs> um, the second question we like to ask is, uh, what's your go-to source for investing and financial information? Yeah, so that's a really around a network, really. I mean, so we generally have developed a reasonably good network of people we can talk to about new software products or, or new areas. It's reasonably obvious where to look. The hard thing is to find the winners. And so that's that's the network of people we talk to. And as I said, those transcripts, those are the main areas that we get. But but ultimately, you're, you're sort of like a, a super sleuth. You're trying to find all these different pieces of information from lots of areas to try and work out what's going to happen. And once you've worked it out, your job is just to work it out before everyone else does. Yeah, yeah. And then the final question that we like to end these interviews with, if you think back to your younger self when you were just starting out investing and getting your you know, your Commonwealth Bank or your Telstra shares for the first time, what advice would you have for your younger self? Just really focus on this concept of few winners and lots of losers and, and, and to run those few winners for long periods of time. You do spend a lot of time finding one good idea and then trying to find another one, if that makes sense. So you just keep going down a, a hole and sometimes you're better off just focusing on the one you've got and making sure it's bigger. But yeah, it's really around running your winners and cutting your losers. The better you get at that, the more money you'll make. Love it. I think, you know, some of the information that you've provided today has been refreshing and uh, I'm sure a lot of our listeners will have got a lot of value from it, Nick. So thank you so much for giving us your time this afternoon. We very much look forward to seeing your pitch in a couple of weeks time. And just a reminder to our Equitymates community, you too can also join and watch Nick's pitch. So thank you very much for, for joining us. No, well, thanks very much for having me, guys. Really appreciate it. Finally as well, Rory, thank you for your time as well and uh, for everything you're doing at Hearts and Minds. No problem. Happy to be here. Thanks, thanks guys. guys. Appreciate thanks it. Thanks for listening to Equitymates Investing Podcast, a production of Equitymates Media. Please remember that everything you hear in Equitymates Investing Podcast is general advice only. The content has been prepared without knowing your personal objectives, specific financial circumstances or goals. The host of Equitymates Investing Podcast may maintain positions in the companies discussed. Before considering any investment, please read the product disclosure statement and consider speaking to a licensed financial professional. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.